are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, we are exploring how that relationship gets worked out in real life with one of the current Sinai and Synapses fellows. Sinai and Synapses is a two-year fellowship committed to elevating the discourse surrounding religion and science and where the five of us first met. So, without further ado... Our guest today is an associate professor of secondary science education at the University of Arkansas. His research interests focus on the authentic practices employed by professional scientists and how school science can more closely approximate that work. As an evangelical Christian preparing pre-service secondary science teachers in the southern United States, Dr. Bergen is uniquely positioned to help his students and those who come into contact with grapple with their relationship to both science and faith. I want to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Stephen Bergen. Thank you. Welcome, Glad Stephen. to be here. Yeah, so happy to have you. Happy to have another uh, science educator on the podcast. I feel like this crop of Sinai and Synapse Fellows has quite a few of you. Yeah, yeah. there are a handful of us. It's kind of nice think, to Ian, see that, you were too. the only one. you were the only one in our crop, and then you just, I don't know, everyone that you know, you said, all right, here, apply. <laughs> well, and I think I was the first science educator in general. Like, I think I was the first yeah. one of Sinai Snapsies and then just, yeah, started telling everybody about it. So you're a great evangelist. There right. you go. <laughs> I don't hear that very often. So. And you know, some, ah, <laughs> uh, well, you know, some very good people too. Yeah. And Steven, it's been wonderful to get to talk with you a little bit before we, uh, before we hit record, but I'm, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how you first fell in love with the sciences. Sure. Um, so I actually grew up in the Pacific Northwest, um, in outside of Portland, and had a lot of time to explore, run around the woods and collect owl pellets and um, <laughs> just think about... Uh, science and, and creation and um i was homeschooled for a number of years um from fourth grade until high school i was homeschooled and so that gave a lot of flexibility in the time that i had to just explore nature um we also had a really good uh, museum of science and industry in portland and we would go there often um Science was the thing that my my parents just said, go for it, explore. And hmm. you know, I had microscopes and chemistry kits and just all sorts of things um, growing up that I think were the initial sort of spark for this is, of all the various things I could study, this is the thing that um, I found most fascinating. Is there like one particular branch of the sciences that, that is near and dear to you? Yeah, I mean, so I quickly can fast forward get to the um my biography so when i was a freshman in high school um overlaps a little bit with my background in faith as well my parents joined um staff with campus crusade for christ um so i'm a missionary kid and we moved from portland oregon to miami florida um like I said, when I was in ninth grade, and I went to a private Christian high school there in South Florida, um, and chemistry quickly became my favorite subject at that school. Um, I graduated 
um, went to the University of Florida, which is actually where all of my degrees are from, um, and I got my undergraduate degree in chemistry, and I knew graduating high school that I was going to study chemistry. Um, now, my reasons weren't super noble, and I would tell um, others this often, that they'd ask, why are you majoring in chemistry? And I said, because I don't want to have to study, and I want to play, and it's the easiest thing I could major in, so that's why I'm majoring in chemistry. And um, I think it's because I had a really good high school chemistry teacher. She um, taught us how to read the periodic table, and I knew that the periodic table had all the answers in it. And if I could <laughs> learn this, then I didn't have to memorize anything. That that every task I was given was like a, a puzzle to solve, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and the answers were right there. Um, and, and I found that, for the most part, throughout my undergraduate time at the University of Florida, that, yeah, the answers were right there on the periodic table. Um, and... Yeah, about my junior year, I made a decision that I wanted to be a high school teacher. So I stayed on and got a master's degree at the University of Florida, fifth years, a fifth year teacher preparation program. And I taught high school chemistry for six years in Gainesville. And um, yeah, taught my students similarly that the periodic table has all the answers on it. <laughs> you don't need to be scared of chemistry. <laughs> Some kind of chemistry fundamentalist. Yeah, here. you're like the periodic table says it, so I. <laughs> there you go. That's. <laughs> I'm so glad that was your experience with chemistry. That was not my yeah. experience with chemistry. Not mine at all. <laughs> so then, what drove you to the uh, your last degree? Yeah, so um, I was a like I said, a teaching high school chemistry. Um, and I was actually teaching in a laboratory research school, um, which was affiliated with the university. So that means that pre-service teachers were coming through our classroom. Um, that was the go-to placements for, for student teachers. We were a walking distance from campus. Um, and also that faculty would use our classrooms for their research projects. Um, so my advisor, um, who we mentioned a little bit earlier, Troy Sadler, um, he studies this concept called socio-scientific issues. So the overlap of um, things that impact public policy, um, controversial issues, where there has to be a decision that's made. Um, but that decision is based on a scientific understanding. And the issue that he was studying at the time was climate change. And so he used my chemistry classroom as a, um, a research lab, so to speak, where he could um, enact this curriculum. And I got involved in seeing what he was doing and how my chemistry students were engaging with this topic of climate change and started to get excited about the possibility of me getting involved in science education research. Um, so shortly after this, it's like a I don't know, a few months long project where he was basically embedded in my classroom as almost a co-teacher. Um, 
started inviting me to take classes, to um, partner with him um, on publications, and eventually I left the classroom and went full-time to work on my PhD to um, become a science educator and and work with future teachers. Hmm. So, yeah, that's kind of how I left the classroom. Yeah. Interesting. How, do, how does chemistry inform the science of climate change? Yeah. Um, so the whole notion of um, fossil fuels and energy production, um, so the greenhouse gases and all of that um, re- really relies on understanding of combustion reactions and so we started off this unit with having students think about just how much carbon dioxide is released um i remember one idea that i had that we ended up doing that was pretty fun was i took all the students out to my car and i I rigged up a way to put a funnel against the exhaust pipe of my car and we were filling up balloons with car exhaust bringing the balloons back into the classroom and um, measuring the carbon dioxide concentration in those balloons um, and then comparing that carbon dioxide concentration to, say, just a normal inflated balloon. Um, You know, because there's a misconception that, oh, well, whenever we breathe, we're breathing out carbon dioxide, so if cars are bad, then people are bad too. My students were able to see in the... um, classroom through these lab experiences just how different the concentrations are um, in carbon dioxide that come out of something like exhaust Um, so yeah I I think a big thing I wanted my students to learn in chemistry was just that these really sub-microscopic things super tiny and very low concentrations can have a really big impact and trying to that whole notion of scale i think is something that is a misconception for for many many people uh when it comes to topics of chemistry like oh the atmosphere is so big so what can what can energy production really do to climate change um when it actually no our atmosphere is quite thin and um, the carbon dioxide that we are releasing into it is having a a devastating impact right now and, and will into the f- future. So wh- kind of what I learned in this research project, going back to that with um, who would become my ad- advisor, was that chemistry didn't have to be about facts, about the periodic table, about getting the right answer only, mm-hmm. but moving beyond that to um, how should that inform decisions that you're making and that our society is making that um, countries make um, so public policy issues and that was a really transformative experience for me to think about the impact that uh, understanding of science could have regardless of what career path my students were to go into. I, I tell my my pre-service teachers now that if my success as a high school chemistry teacher was measured by how many like actual chemists came out of my classroom, then I'm probably a miserable failure because I don't know one. <laughs> um, 
I don't even know how many of them were science majors or anything, um, but I like to think that my students think twice before they dump a can of paint down the drain when they're cleaning out their garage. Um, and and so that, you know, teaching science is so much more than preparing future scientists. It could be part of it. I'll give you that. But um, to me, what's much more important is, is having a, a citizenry that that understands what's going on in the world around them and maybe thinks twice before they elect a certain person to office things like that <laughs> imagine you that. Hear that from a lot of people that like uh <laughs> you hear things like oh well i another day has passed and i haven't used the pythagorean theorem or i uh, another day has passed and i didn't have to know how heavy helium is you know there's that that notion that it, because you didn't use it in your job that it didn't matter but you know that's not that's not true. That's not the purpose of, of right. learning that, right? Uh, so why should people know science? Well, I think one thing that I've come to appreciate, I love, I still love going on hikes. I still love camping. I still love being outside and um, looking up at the stars on <laughs> particularly dark skies and having a appreciation and a sense of wonder um a perspective of just how small i am in this universe um hmm. i do think that that's a big reason to learn science um mm -hmm. to to look at something and say wow i understand a little bit of the history of this incredible um vista that i'm looking at here's how it got here glaciers carved this that's fascinating that's a lot of power when you're standing up you know a glacier point in yosemite national park and um can think about about that so that's one reason and then uh, like we've already talked about i think um decision making is important for everybody regardless of what they go on to do um having some understanding of how vaccines work and why a mask might uh, reduce the spread of a virus, things like that. Um, that Those decisions that people make are informed by a proper understanding of science. And then, yes, I do think that there are career opportunities for students. Um, I, I'd put that, though, as almost a distant third compared to those other two for me. Yeah. Yeah. You make it sound like the whole mask wearing and situation with like vaccines is pertinent. Uh, you know, <laughs> is what I can't imagine is important to understand. Oh yeah, under yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. I think so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But a, a lot of what you just described about informing wonder and awe are things that are shared in what I would call uh, proper expressions of religion as well. Mm -hmm. Um, what has been your uh, religious landscape? As well? Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. I have, um, so I mentioned earlier, my parents were missionaries. So I grew up mm -hmm. in a, in a very uh, faith-based uh, household. Um, church was important. Um, 
evangelical faith um, in particular, but I was multi-denominational. So we went to Baptist churches, I went to Presbyterian churches, went to uh, like non-denominational church. Anyway, (laughs) um, growing up, a lot of that. So I had kind of this understanding that what was more important than denomination were things like your view of scripture and um, Christ and things like that, and that there's these kind of main things and kind of secondary issues like perhaps baptism or communion. Um, So, but the one thing growing up that was really hard for me, and perhaps one of the reasons I gravitated towards chemistry was the issue of evolution um, and origins and the reconciliation of a, a literal view of Genesis with what science was saying. And so... You know, growing up and being homeschooled too, um, we went to conventions from things like Creation Science Institute stuff and John Morris and all those people talking about how dinosaurs were on the ark and we've even found the ark on Mount Ararat. And so I remember all this stuff growing up convinced that the ark is there and that it was big enough and that even dinosaurs might still be here in parts of Africa that, like, we haven't penetrated yet. And I remember going to conferences and hearing recordings of said dinosaurs. It was a lot like, um, I don't know, like wow. people today, like Bigfoot hunters and stuff. Um, so very muffled audio. And, like, man, it would have been nice if they had clear recordings and videos and stuff but man that did sound like a dinosaur there must be must be some long lost species of dinosaur that that has survived that's there in africa so this was the environment that i grew up in um i even remember going to natural history museums and a little joke that my dad used to have was he'd make a little siren sound and go eh, eh, evolution alert evolution alert whenever we would see a signage that said that something was of a certain age or that it evolved that was an evolution alert um and in my childhood mind that meant oh it's some vast conspiracy to trick us all into not believing our bibles um right so uh you know i we moved and i studied mainly chemistry and then same with uh undergrad i i could avoid most biology courses um and i almost sheltered my mind completely from wrestling with biology even as a high school chemistry teacher um that never came up really um i didn't have to talk about um origins or evolution at all and i could Mm kind of just slip under the radar and um claim ignorance and i never faced that cognitive dissonance until about 2009 believe it or not so i'm uh i'm relatively new to a what i would call an informed perspective even of science um but also of how science interacts with um with faith so in 2009 is when i left the classroom um to Hmm. get my phd in science education particularly to prepare 
pre-service science teachers. Kind of as an aside, we have a shortage of science teachers in our country. Um, mm-hmm. And I would love it if there were so many future like chemistry teachers, let's say, that I could have whole sections of classes where I was only teaching how to teach chemistry. But the reality is that we just don't have numbers like that. And so mm-hmm. in my classes, I'm teaching people how to teach biology, how to teach physics, how to teach chemistry. And so I quickly realized in 2009 that, oh, this whole thing that I was getting away with of not having to think about evolution, <laughs> it isn't going to fly anymore because I'm going to have to prepare future high school teachers to teach science and I better brush up and learn and know what that science is um, I wouldn't say I was hostile at all to it I just was I just kind of set it aside oh I don't worry about that I don't think about it doesn't impact my day to day life I'm I don't know ambivalent to whether or not Genesis is literal or not type of a thing doesn't matter to me well all of a sudden it didn't matter um, and so, really, that's when my personal reading and um, buying books and finding BioLogos um, was very influential for me in reading and getting these answers to questions that I had. Um, and coming, I, don't know, I wouldn't say quickly, but progressively to a view that science and faith are two different ways of knowing they're not in conflict with each other that the bible was written at a time and a place and a context and that um a modern scientific understanding of evolution including human evolution is not at all in conflict with with any faith belief other than an exact literal interpretation of these first few chapters in in Genesis, and and that was really powerful for me, um, even for my family. Um, going back to my evolution alert dad, I don't think he would. You know, I don't want to speak for him, but in our we've had so many conversations about this, and his views have been evolving. Pardon the pun as well over since <laughs> two thousand nine, as I've been able to talk to him and share with him resources from BioLogos where he probably isn't as far along as I am, but I don't think today he would say evolution alert in a museum because he does not think that evolution is in conflict with his faith anymore. For those listeners out there who want to learn more about Biologos, you can listen to episode 103 from the podcast, which at recording, which just released, but this won't be released for a few more weeks, where we talked with Jim Stump, who's the vice president Um, and host their podcast. They have so many good resources for people who are navigating these particular issues. Um, They started off just focusing on evolution. Um, After Francis Collins's work on the Human Genome Project and kind of a lot of the... It seems to be where a lot of the anxiety is about science and religion in the evangelical world. And speaking as somebody who came from that world and somebody who totally has also heard Mm -hmm. those dinosaur recordings from central uh from the jungles of central africa and has seen 
satellite images on Mount Ararat <laughs> mm-hmm. of of that's definitely the Ark and has heard all of the arguments in my upbringing as well. It's like we just keep getting stuck here on evolution and the age of the earth and the literal interpretations of Genesis uh-huh. 1 and 2. Um, but it since you've started to evolve yourself <laughs> uh-huh. in, in your understanding of things. Um, and you've started to have these conversations with other people as well. Are you finding that there is that conflict as is that conflict as pronounced as we imagine it is, or are people more comfortable with science and religions than we think? Well, I do think that the question of human origins in particular is the most, um, a troubling issue to a number of the people that I talk with. Um, mm-hmm. We can go a certain way, but stops here. And I think that's partly related to the elevation of scripture in certain evangelical communities, um, almost an idolization of it to the point where if any one word if there's a question about any part of it, then the whole thing breaks down. And Mm. in this um, sinners in the hand of an angry God country that we live in, people are quite scared into their faith, I would say, many times. And eternal security and where I'm going and um, heaven versus hell is something that I think forces people at times to say, you know what, I'm just going to go with a literal interpretation and screw the science because of my certainty that I have and what's to come next. Um, And it's almost like making um, religion science. Um, I know that there are people like the new atheists who I would say make science a religion, I think in some circles of the evangelical world, um, their their religious beliefs have been treated much like science. I mean, you think about those conferences that we went to. This is all testable. This is all falsifiable. Um, right. And that's just not how faith works. <laughs> no. Also not how dinosaurs work. Only mammals can roar. Sorry. <laughs> nice. T-Rex didn't roar. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, yeah, with my um, my students, um, it's been really neat uh, over the past number of years to work with future biology teachers, many of whom are coming from uh, evangelical traditions like myself, where I am not shy to share with them my personal story that I just shared with you all. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's been really, it almost gives them permission to question and dig and read and do things that I was avoiding for fear of what it might do um, to my faith. And so I've shared BioLogos with them. Um, I had a, a student in my office just last week, 
Um, and we were looking at scripture passages together. So it was really neat. I was pulling books off the shelf that I've got from the Sinai and Synapses Fellowship and saying, hey, look at this. Here's a way that this can be interpreted. And let's look at, at this verse. And um, so what I do, so that was a one-on-one conversation with someone who I know is an evangelical. Um, so I share my story more or less in class and I say, um, I recognize there are many different faith traditions here in this classroom, um, and that this could be an issue that you might be wrestling with. I share with them the NSTA's position statement on the teaching of evolution, and mm-hmm. that this is what we do, this is what we're called to do, this is science, this is not controversial um, in science. Um, and we're not going to pretend like it is and set up debates between creationism and evolution in the classroom. And then I say, but if you're struggling with this, um, I invite you to come and schedule a time to sit down in my office with me one-on-one and I can go into way in depth about you know things that have happened in, in my life. And so this particular student took me up on said offer and said, yeah, I want to hear more about your views on how evolution is not in conflict with your Christian faith. So, hmm. it's one, one strategy I employ. Have you gotten pushback at all with that? I mean, have you, I'm, I'm just curious. I mean, cause I like that strategy. So I'm just kind of curious, like from, have you had pushback from colleagues or other students or anything like that? Uh, not really. I, I mean, I do feel like I'm in a place where, faculty faith is the norm um, here at the University of Arkansas. People are very outspoken where um, I don't feel I haven't got pushback. Now one, it probably isn't known. Maybe some people listen to this podcast and know some of my strategies I employ in the classroom now. But I I think that if they did hear the sorts of things I do, there really wouldn't be pushback um, because at the end of the day, what's happening is um, I'm helping students to teach scientific um, consensus in their classrooms. I'm not at all suggesting to do something other than that. Um, and so I don't think there would there would be pushback. Um, but again, I think it's kind of my context of this university and the the state that I'm in. Speaking of which, one quick story I'll say too about here. So I spent a few years, so I graduated in 2012. I spent a few years at Old Dominion University in Virginia, um, Norfolk, Virginia, before this particular opportunity opened up and it made lots of sense to come here. Um, And so I'm having this job interview um, it's going well. I'm very excited about the opportunity of coming here. And um, I get dropped off at the airport after this very successful interview uh, by my science ed colleague right down the hall, who who Ian knows, big nature of mm-hmm. science guy. Um, yeah. And he, so he drops me off and he says, so Stephen, if we were to um, offer you the job, would you take it? As a question he asked me. Mm. And I'm like, well, of 
like, yeah, I'm on a job interview. Like, why would I go on a job interview if I wasn't? But I couldn't think of anything to say. How do I respond to this? I didn't want to sound too, you know, desperate to get out of my current situation. So I said, (laughs) I'd have to pray about it. That was my response, just naturally, without even thinking. Mm -hmm. Would you take the job if we offered it to you? Well, I'd have to pray about it. And so... (laughs) That was the last thing I said to um, this uh, faculty member, my colleague, and I get dropped off at the airport. It was also the only time that anything remotely related to faith came up in the whole multi-day on-campus interview. And my my dad um, calls me and says, how'd your interview go? And I said, it went really, really good until I told this guy that I'd have to pray about it and now he probably thinks I'm crazy and don't even believe in science and that I believe in some magical response that's going to come it's going to say yes or no take the job um and so I I was really convinced that I'd just blown it like this was the worst thing I could have said to a science educator and my dad very wise guy says actually that is the best thing you could have said if you think about it because if they don't hire you and your faith was the reason, then you don't want to work there. And he said, and if they do hire you, now they know that you are a person of faith and you've already let that cow out of the bag. If they do hire you, they'll know that, oh, Stephen prays. Um, And so then I calmed down and it was fine. And obviously they hired me. Um, And I've actually, with that colleague, um, have had many conversations about science and faith. We even went to a conference at the College of the Ozarks, which is up near Branson, Missouri, um, Mm -hmm. and we went to a science and faith conference, just the two of us, shortly after taking this job. Um, And he is, I'd say he'd probably label himself atheist, I'd say he's more of an agnostic, but... um, he knows that I have an evangelical faith and so here's a conference sponsored by an evangelical private school science and faith conversations we register and go to it I I was kind of convinced that his reasons for going it might be purely to troll it but I was like all right you want to invite me to come with you let's go so we're not presenting at it we're just going to go and sit there and um listen and participate but we had such wonderful conversations on the way up um i so i i told him look if at this conference they present that the only view of um the Christian faith is a young earth and literal six-day view of creation then i'll give you that they haven't adequately portrayed the various options out there and i said but if you're expecting them to have a richard dawkins type person come up and speak and if anything short of that it isn't truly a balanced perspective i said that's not going to happen at an evangelical school they're not going to invite someone who's going to try to convince everybody that there is no god um i said but there's a lot of ranges and so to my surprise it was a very well-rounded conference a very even-handed treatment of lots of different ways that you could read genesis and we had such wonderful conversations and he was somewhat i might say surprised 
that this evangelical community was more open to a deeper understanding of evolution and origins than he might have initially imagined. So, yeah. Interesting. Uh, so if you were not a professor, Stephen, yeah. what would you be doing? <laughs> well, I think it would be hard to get me far from science. I, can, I love the <laughs> national parks. It's been my hobby checking them off, of, you know, seeing how many I can get to and going to add a few more this summer. I could see myself yeah. working for the National Park Service in some capacity. Um, that would be awesome. Um, I could see myself in a, um, you know, working in D.C. for a environmental nonprofit type thing related to conservation. Um, so that's kind of become a recent interest of mine, um, just being outside and um, going and looking at amazing things and glad that they're mm -hmm. preserved and hoping that they still could be preserved. I also um, am, I don't know, I overestimate my own abilities in lots of things. So, you know, I, I love snowboarding. <laughs> I don't think I could ever do that professionally, but deep down inside, I think I could. Um, so that's another thing. Um, but I, I don't think that would uh, be sustainable as far as a, a, a income providing thing. Well, I mean, never give up, though, right? I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. Who knows? You I'm only... maybe you know take a sabbatical and go tr give it a shot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you're never too old to break bones in unique ways. Yeah, and exactly. I, um, I've recently taken up mountain biking here in northwest Arkansas. Um, so, you know, now I can break bones not just in the wintertime far away from home, but I can do it Can do it right here. I even got a, yeah. few, got a few stitches in my elbow last year to, to prove that I can hurt myself. <laughs> mountain biking. <Right>. Support... <laughs> Support your local emergency Correct. department, people. Yeah. <laughs> if the National Park Service started hiring uh, forest chaplains, then Ooh. you might never see me again. Yeah. That, that is my dream job. Just let me, like, go pray with the trees <laughs> and uh, lead some sort of spiritually service out there in the middle of the, of the woods and... Uh, I'm there. Nice. You'll never see me again. Be like Snow White with a trail of deer and things behind me. And <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, I'm there with you. I'm, I'm there curious, with you. Stephen. Um, you and I have known each other for what ten years now, I guess. Probably Met, about yeah, that. Ten or so years ago. Um, I'm just, you know, we you just kind of talk about if you weren't professor, what would you be doing? But I, I as a fellow science educator, I'm wondering, you know. When your career as a professor, as a science educator is done, and especially in, in your interests with science and religion and stuff like that, what would be the things that you hope to to be able to do? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I, I do want to write a lot more. I do think that mm. there are things that I can share that I haven't fleshed out yet. So I don't know if that's books or trying to find a, a medium to do that. Um, you know, we do our, our writing um, 
academic writing, but I could see myself getting into more different forms of writing that are more widely read, let's say. Um, I would enjoy that. I do miss being in the classroom, um, being mm-hmm. a high school chemistry teacher, um, but I, 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 don't, I do love this job, too. I think it mm-hmm. gives me a broader sphere of influence. I'm still preparing high school science teachers who then are reaching way more students than I ever would have reached in the classroom. So I, I don't really see myself returning to that. Um, but yeah, I could see myself getting involved more in professional development opportunities for teachers and things like that. Um, but I mean, that's part of the fun of being a professor, right? You never have to retire. I can do this until I'm can hardly walk. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know if that day will ever come that I retire from being a professor, at least right now. I feel like my whole career is still ahead of me. So as I'm sure you both do as well. (laughs) Yeah. Mm. So you said that you haven't fleshed out ideas yet, but I mean, you and I have talked at conferences together and and I know you saw a presentation I did with Mark uh, or uh, what was it? The conference right before the pandemic hit in January of 2020 of, you know, my interest in writing kind of the same way. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. do you mind talking at all? I mean, I know we're running short on time, but what are some things that you would love to write for the general public or something like that? Yeah. I I mean, I would like to get really personal in my writing. Um, And I do think that there are places in academic writing where I can do that. I'm trying to brainstorm and think of things. But I mean, even this conversation that we just had, I know that it gets Mm -hmm. out there on a podcast, but um, I'm really interested in the perspectives of my students and their journeys and how my um, story overlapped with theirs and um, yeah so almost like narrative right. accounts of, of relationships and I mean I going back to your previous podcast I listened to the one with Jim Stump and the whole idea of Biologos not beating things over people's head is saying you're wrong and I'm right I think part of that is just telling look here is how relationships built here's how perspectives change over time in a non-combative way mm-hmm. um, and I, I think that stories can do that however you tell those yeah. stories well, way back in episode 42, we had Dr. Scott, the paleontologist oh, from yeah. Dinosaur Train on, and he told Ian that his role as an, as, a, as an educator who educates science educators is one of the most important jobs in the entire world right now, and how we are going to inspire the next generation to save the planet. So don't quit your day job. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, something I think about and uh, is... So, like, you look at Galileo and his trial and how long it took for the church to adopt a um, position that the earth revolved around the sun. I mean, we're talking hundreds of years before people started to say, oh, those passages about the sun standing still, okay, we can we can read it a different way that doesn't contradict 
what we see in our, our solar system. Um, that gives me hope for the future about things like evolution. Um, yeah, it's going to take a long time, but <laughs> perhaps there will be a day where um, people aren't afraid of, of the realities of how old our universe is and how life evolved on our planet. Right. Yeah. So, Stephen, here at the end of our conversation, I want to ask you a question that I've asked all the other fellows. Um, and you can take a, a moment to think about it as well. But what is one thing that you wish that everyone knew about the world? Like, if you could implant one bit of knowledge into every single brain on the planet, <laughs> what would it be? Wow. Huh. Um, one thing I think everybody should know. The periodic table, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't want to. I mean, I, I want to go deeper than that. I, I do think, and I don't know if this is something to know, but something that I even want to know more about myself is just how unique we all truly are as individuals. Um, and so... I think that we don't study other people enough and where they're coming from and what their backgrounds are and that we make this assumption that everybody's experiences and backgrounds are the same as mine. <laughs> and so I think that's one thing I would want everybody to know is that that's wrong, that no, everybody is uniquely different from you and you need to get to know them. And if you do then your views on, like if you're a teacher, how you might teach that person will change. If you're not a teacher, your views on, you know, how you think of them as a friend or foe might change. Um, mm. Because yes, while we are so individually unique, we do have common um, desires for the future and you're only going to get yeah. to see those common desires for the future if you take the time to get to know people at the individual level also the social cultural level i want to travel way more i feel like my um i've just been so stuck in this little niche of the world and, and i want to see so much more because i know that i'll i'll just have a deeper understanding of humanity as a result I don't know if that answered your question. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, yeah. Stephen, for taking the time to talk with us about what you're working on and what gets you going. I feel energized and I feel like I want to go visit a park. Yeah, definitely. So thank you for that. All right. <laughs>